I, I too want to, as Seth and Alyssa and Seth, several people have mentioned, just thank you for your, your persevering and for your adapting and for your not growing weary and doing good. This, is, this has been a difficult season of life. And uh, has anyone else been close to despair at times? It's uh, tough times, but uh, I just want to thank you for keeping on, keeping on, and God is going to make from us as individuals and from all of us as a church uh, what he wants, and we're going to be better people for it on the other side. One of the books that has been uh, very meaningful in my life is a book called Raising a Modern Day Knight by uh, Robert Lewis. Is anyone familiar with that book? It's it's an excellent book for raising young men into uh, what our culture calls toxic masculinity. It's not really, though. It's it's godly Christians, and it it tells us how to... uh, uh, In the book... Lewis tell, gives a, a, a model and a, a definition for manhood. And then he uh, instructs you to, to teach your, your boys in each step of life, each phase of life, what it means to, to reject passivity and to accept responsibility and to lead courageously and to seek the greater reward. It, it uh, encourages you to sit down with, with your kids at each phase of life and prepare them. Tell them how to live that way and prepare them for the next phase of life. And, and then at the end of each phase, you have a big celebration. You uh, uh, kill the fatted calf, you invite their friends over, and uh, most importantly, you invite the men in their lives to, who are important to them to speak into their lives and to give them encouragement. So you, you sit down and read books with your kids and, and discuss them and prepare them for the next phase of life. And then you celebrate when they get there. And for, for our family, that began at kindergarten. Just before they would go into kindergarten, uh, I took my boys out for a camping trip. And over the evening meal, I uh, told them how proud their mother and I are of them and what fine young men they're developing into, and uh, then I told them how life is about to change for them now that they're going into kindergarten, and I told them uh, what they could expect, the changes that they could expect, and assured them that they have nothing to worry about, that they're fine young men, and they're, they're ready for the challenge, and it's going to be a, uh, an adventure for them. Well, like I said, I... I started off uh, at kindergarten. I did it for my oldest son. I did it for my middle son. And when it came time to, to do this for my daughter, she let me know in no uncertain terms that she didn't want to go camping. She wanted to go to a hotel. And she wanted to eat in restaurants. And she wanted her morning cocoa shaken, not stirred. Can you empathize with my daughter? Is there anyone here that would prefer to, to go to a hotel than to go camping? 
my wife put her foot down on camping a long time ago. And we're, we're starting up again just because that's what the kids do. But you got to love a hotel. I mean, you do things in hotels that you would never dream of doing in your own house. You, you, you never make the bed in the first place because you have people to do that. And in fact, you even trash the bed a little, a little more than usual because someone else is going to come by and make the bed for you and maybe put a delightful chocolate under the pillow for you. And so you never make the bed. You, you use as many wash rags and hand cloths and towels as you can because uh, they're there for your use, for, the, for your disposal. And, and then you never hang them up. At home, you always hang them up. You never think about dropping them on the floor at home. But in, in the hotel, you just drop them right where you leave them because someone's going to come by and take care of that for you. And uh, you leave plates and, and cups and bowls and utensils and detritus all over the place. Whenever you're through using it, you drop it and because uh, someone's going to come by and pick it up. You never do that at home. Let me ask you, is, is your church your home or is it your hotel? Do you, do you uh, just drop stuff, papers, uh, use the resources without thinking about it? Uh, I have a friend who, who, one of his jobs at his church, a local church, is to go through the, the pews between the pews and straighten up everything, pick up all the gum wrappers and, and candy wrappers and the notes that have been scribbled on and straighten up the, the, uh, the hymnals and the Bibles. And one day he was going through and he, he saw a, a little stack of fingernail clippings on the ground. At least I assume they were fingernail clippings. I hope they weren't toenails. But someone sat there in a, a church service and Clipped their nails during the church service. Just left it there for someone else to pick up. Are you one of those people that uh, just leaves uh, trash right where you find it? That uh, uh, leaves a big mess and, and wastes resources? Or are you one of the precious few people who uh, goes around and picks up? And Because you want your your church to, to reflect well. This is your home. Is the, is the church your home or is it your hotel? Last weekend, pastor, I was inspired by Pastor Nathan to, to rename, retitle the, the message this morning, Don't Be That Church. But I decided to just keep it the original title, How to Improve Your Congregation. A sad and significant amount of consumerism exists in the church of Jesus Christ today, similar to our behavior in a mall. Uh, we move from church to church shopping for just the right combination of what we want. In a typical congregation, paid staff carries the burden of the church's spiritual health and and uh, soul care while members happily play their role as, as recipients. Many pastors have uh, accepted this situation and seem content as long as 
attendance is increasing, and if the budget has enough financial stability to fuel the programs. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, paint a radically different portrait of how we should be in a local congregation. So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I so want this to be true in my life, and I see how far from this I I actually am most of the time. We long for this, Father, to be, to be true in our lives. We long for this to be true of our congregation. And so we listen now to you, Father, and ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds, and open our hearts, that we could receive instruction, and that we would make these principles in your word a part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't be content to sit as a consumer in church. The power of the Holy Spirit is in you, and you can renew your mind and experience rejuvenated participation, rejuvenated fellowship. And uh, I'm going to talk about five steps that that we need to take to... uh, improve our local congregation. The first is be intentional in your relationships. Be intentional in your relationships. Verses 12 through 14, we just read, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Don't just slip in and out of the service every Sunday unnoticed. Don't merely drift. But look for ways to intentionally contribute to the body when you come to church. Consciously, intentionally put on 
Paul says. These are, these are commands. Put on compassionate hearts. Has to do with our emotions. Has to do with our feelings. Connect. Uh, be sympathetic. Be empathetic. Show concern. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You come to church prepared to identify with others in the body. Put on compassionate hearts. Be intentionally compassionate when you come to church. And then he says, put on kindness. Refers to, someone said, a goodness towards others that pervades the entire person, mellowing all harsh aspects. It's being friendly. It's being generous, considerate, affectionate, warm, showing concern and care. Intentionally take on the mindset of kindness, we're told. And then put on humility. This is lowliness in thinking. Go low. Put on humility. And of course... The passage that we're all familiar with, but we could all do to, with uh, spending more time meditating on is Philippians chapter 2, our Lord's example. Philippians chapter 2, which says in part, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Intentionally engage with Christ-like humility. This is the only antidote to the self-love that poisons all human relationships. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, put on meekness. We just studied meekness in our uh, Beatitudes study, so we know that meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Aristotle said of this, this ancient word, uh, it was the happy means between too much, or the happy mean between too much anger and too little anger. It's a person who is so self-controlled because he is God-controlled. A meek person uh, is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. It's a person who shows strength and sweetness. It's a willingness to go along with what other people want to do. Put on meekness, and it says put on patience. Also translated long-suffering. It's uh, the opposite of quick anger, resentment, or revenge, and it epitomizes our Lord. It endures injustice and troublesome circumstances with the hope of relief. 
It's a willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than to inflict such injuries, such hurts. Then he says, verse 13, intentionally bear with one another. It means to endure, to put up with someone. It's the, the Christian virtue of tolerance. Our world talks a lot about tolerance, and it demands it from people, and it's not very tolerant at times of people that it doesn't think are very tolerant. Our world doesn't really know what tolerance is, but we need to, to bear with one another. Bear with one another because we never forget that a forgiving person is a forg- uh, forgiven person is a forgiving person. So bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Our Lord is our model of forgiveness as he is for all of these virtues that we're commanded to imitate and to put on. He has forgiven our sins totally. uh, Believers must be willing to forgive others. Uh, When wronged and betrayed, Christians are called to forgive each other, even as we have been forgiven for our betrayals of Christ. And then he says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all else, Christians are called to, to love one another. Love unites all these virtues. Some great saint of the past was quoted by Augustine as saying, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In other words, there are essentials of the faith, truths that we all believe as, as Christians that unite us. And then there are a lot of secondary and tertiary issues that, uh, that we believe. And, and we give people grace in those situations. Uh, we give them liberty. We say with the Apostle Paul, who are you to judge another man's servant? Because by his own master he will stand or fall. And he will stand because God is able to make him stand. So in the, the, the many, many Secondary issues that we deal with with people. We give grace in those. In uh, essence, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In all things, love. Supernatural love poured into the hearts of believers is the adhesive of the church. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to to come to church with intentionality where each person feels the pain of another member. Both Steve Jones and uh, Pastor Nathan have communicated recently about the fact that we live in a culture where there are so many voices, myriad voices, commanding our attention and demanding our compliance and telling us what's true and what's false. And all of those voices uh, seem convincing. 
They, they, they seem right. And there are people in, in this church, there are people in every church who believe different things about social issues, the many social issues that go on. But we don't do cancel culture in the church of Christ. We don't, uh, we don't give people the cold shoulder because they don't agree with us. We don't say, we don't call them mean names, which closes uh, all the discussion and turn our backs on people like that. How do we handle disagreements? In, in the church of Christ, we do it with compassion and kindness and humility, and meekness, patience, forbearance and forgiveness, with tolerance and love. We communicate, we, we are anxious to communicate with people and listen to them because we'll probably learn something. And we certainly don't, uh, don't turn our backs on them and consider them an enemy because they believe differently from us. So first, be vulnerable in your relationships. And second, excuse me, be intentional in your relationships. And second, be vulnerable with others. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Be vulnerable with, with others. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Because you rest in, in his forgiveness. You don't, uh, you don't need to be, to be fearful of being exposed, since... Nothing that you could do uh, isn't already known and covered by his sacrificial work. Being vulnerable means uh, allowing a person to know you fully, your thoughts, your feelings, your challenges, your weaknesses. It's a scary thing, and it requires humility and strength. It requires meekness. We have to overcome our, our fear of being judged. But this is how intimacy is achieved. Uh, this is how we get to know and accept and support and love one another. Look back at verse 12. It says, In view of what God has done through Jesus Christ for the believer, God's chosen, set apart, the object of God's incomprehensible special love. Peace of God frees us from, from riding the roller coaster of fear of other people's opinions and responses so that we could be, we could be real, we could be authentic with one another. Be intentional, be vulnerable. And third, be a committed student of God's word. Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you're intentional and vulnerable in your relationships, your conversations will quickly go beyond superficial facts. To share life-changing wisdom in these moments will need the word of God dwelling in you richly. The word of God, the word of Christ, it says, 
It's, it's the scripture, all of scripture, the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, the word of revelation that he brought into this world. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word richly means abundantly or extravagantly rich. And the word dwell means to live in or to be at home. So scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and control every thought and word and deed. Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a worker, as a workman, who does not uh, need to be ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth. I kind of stumbled through that, so I'm going to read it again. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. Our world is constantly changing its, its definitions, our definitions, and constantly adding new words and, and new, uh, new slogans. And as Christians, it's best that we don't just pick up on the world, on our society's definitions and uh, our society's terms and, and pick up on their mottos and slap them on t-shirts and signs and march with them. We need to know what God's unchanging word says about what's going on in our world. We need to, uh, we need to, to make that our standard. And so as we interact with, with people, with cultural and social uh, differences, we need to have God's terms, God's, God's uh, definitions, and we need, to, we need to interact with those as we, as we uh, interact with the important issues in our society and not just pick up on their slogans and, and run with them. Are you taking time to understand how... Uh, the word practically applies to your life. We need that. Be intentional. Be vulnerable. Be a committed student of God's word. And fourth, look for ministry opportunities. Verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with Thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teach and admonish are, are words that we often assign to formally trained, full-time ministry staff. But that's not the way God intended it. Uh, God's design is for all of his children to be involved in his redemptive work all the time. If you're, if you're a believer, you're a minister. If you're saved, you're a servant. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given gifts to people and gifted people to the church for the purpose of training up the body so that they can minister. No, so that the body can do the work of the ministry. We're called to do the work of the ministry and our pastors uh, are are to train us to do it. So no one is given grace 
uh, to just be a recipient, but to be an instrument of that very grace in the lives of others. Look for ministry opportunities. Like I said, God has given each one of us gifts and talents and abilities and passions. And as we use those to glorify him, he gives us joy. And he builds the body. He contributes to the body. Are there things that bother you when you come to church that, that you say, you know, why isn't someone doing that? There's a need over here and it's, it's left uh, for someone else to do. Why, why doesn't someone jump in and do that? And that's a good question. And if you feel that way, it's probably because you're supposed to jump in and take care of it. There are so many things to do in every church. Some of them are up front. Some of them are leadership things. But most of them are just behind-the-scenes things of the, the essential uh, items or the essential uh, needs of, of, of the body. That it's our responsibility to, uh, to contribute to. So look for, look for ministry opportunities. Look for what you're passionate about. Look for what brings you joy and jump in. It'll bring you joy, and it'll cause you to really grow in your relationship with Christ. And then fifth, and finally, recognize that your life no longer belongs to you. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the very first step. Everything else flows out of, out of this posture. God owns us. He owns our time, our money, our schedule, and every one of our relationships. An active ministry lifestyle begins with surrender of yourself to the lordship of of Christ in, in all that we are and all that we have. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether, Whatever then, whether you eat or drink or Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Imagine what could be possible in a, a local church if, we, if it was populated with people who weren't merely consumers, but were intentional and vulnerable, students of the Word of God, seeking opportunities to minister and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just want to tell you again what we can't tell you enough, that we love you, that we are dependent upon you, Father. And, and uh, we want so desperately to be the saints that you uh, expect us to be and have equipped us to be. We long to be the body that you want us to be, the fellowship in a world that, that so desperately needs you and needs your answers. And we pray that you would bring this about in Jesus' name. Amen.